Would you pray with me? I know so many prayers. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you that we can be continually in prayer, consistently in prayer. I thank you that you want to be in relationship with us. You want to be family with us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you don't come into our presence on Sunday mornings. We remember that we are in your presence. So help us to remember that maybe more than just now. But right now, we pray that you fill us with your spirit. Open your word to us and open our hearts to your word. We give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Jolt and Geza Pilati were brothers who lived in a cave. Not like cavemen. They weren't. This isn't prehistoric. It's not even medieval. It's like 2009. Jolt and Geza Pilati lived in a cave uh, outside of Budapest, and they survived by scavenging junk in the streets and going through rubbish bins and then trying to clean it up and sell it for pennies and get just enough money for food. That's why they were hard for the lawyers to find, because in 2009, they found out that they had a grandmother whom they'd never met in, in Germany who had passed away and who had left her estate to the two brothers and an estranged sister in the United States. She left them $7 billion. They went from living in a cave to $7 billion. And I love it. The guy's first reaction is, they're like, now we can find some women! (laughs) Because women, strangely, have so far not been attracted to two guys who live in a cave. I get it. At least they had their priorities. What would you do if suddenly somebody were like, seven billion dollars? You had some sort of fantastical inheritance that just plopped on your lap. Would it, would it change the way you do things? Yes. Would it change who you are? No. Maybe. Yes. Yes. You'd be a different person. If only you're a billionaire now and everybody treats you differently. Would you, would you spend it all at once? Would you pay off all your debts first? Would you, would you invest it in the future? Would you buy gifts for all the people you care about? Would you invest in the things in this world you think are really important that somebody, by golly, somebody ought to do something about? Would it make you think about the future and what you can do with it? Would it make you think about the past and where you can you cave? Would it make you think, no, I'm soundly in the present and I'm living in the present? I don't know. What would you think of? What would it do? Now, I say all this because if you're familiar at all with what's going on in the Bible, you know that God has absolutely given you a fantastical inheritance, right? And, and if you're listening, you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, it's not like $7 billion. It's just like eternal life in the whole world. Um, but the question today is twofold here. Because if you actually believe that, well, first off, do you live like you recognize that? Do you actually live each day as if you, you recognize that you've been given a fantastical, unfathomable inheritance? And number two, the second half of that is, if so, when you think about that, how does that affect how you live on a day-to-day basis? How does that affect how you look at the world around you, how you look at your life? 
I mean, think about what we, what we see in the Old Testament about God's people and the inheritance that they were given. I love Psalm 37. The psalmist sings in Psalm 37, verse 7, Be still, be calm before Yahweh. Wait patiently for him. Don't fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Why not? Why, why shouldn't we fret? Why shouldn't we be anxious when the world looks like it's turning in all sorts of wrong directions? Whichever side you think you are on with the conflict in Israel and Gaza, the world is clearly turning the wrong direction, right? Shouldn't you fret? You should, shouldn't you? If you care, you should fret. Ignore the Bible and fret. Yes? He says, don't. Refrain from anger. Don't do that. Turn from wrath. Don't fret, he says again in the span of two verses. How many times does the Bible have to say something before it's true? He says it twice in two verses. Don't fret. It leads only to evil, right? You agree with that, don't you? Do you agree with Scripture or not? Don't nod. You agree that fretting leads only to evil, yes? And you live like that. You're like, I would stress and fret and be anxious and fume and angry. It leads only to evil. Because I read my Bible. Or do you find yourself going, well, I mean, I mean, there's some things, if you understood the situation. Yes, I mean, yes, I get you, Pastor Kevin, but I think fretting is completely natural here. Oh, it's completely natural. You're absolutely right. There are a number of completely natural things I do not try to do. But if I believe my Bible, I'm pretty sure that that leads only to evil. It's toxic. It's unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, but... Abandoned scripture, if you will, but this is my owner's manual. I think to the degree to which I ignore this, I'm going to go off in wonky directions. He says, no, refrain from evil, turn from wrath. Don't fret, it leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off. You don't want to be evil in an evil world because evil men will be cut off. But those who have hope in Yahweh inherit the land, enjoy great peace. Evil won't last. Take a stand for truth. Absolutely. But don't fret and fume quite so much. Take a stand for truth because you love truth, not because you're so anxious about evil. Centuries later, Jesus expanded on it. Yahweh says, uh, Yahweh says they'll inherit the land. Jesus said, blessed are the meek who discipline, who constrain themselves. No wrath, no fretting, no stressing. For they will inherit the earth, not just the land of Israel, but the earth. So can you keep yourself under control? Can you be meek, power under control? The psalmist says in verse 17, Yahweh upholds the righteous. The days of the blameless are known to Yahweh and their inheritance will endure forever. God's on this, no matter what else happens. End of the story. We know the end of the story, like like we're praying. This is a forever promise, right? We know, no matter what else happens. Those Yahweh blesses will inherit the land, he says in verse 22. Those he curses will be cut off. He's on this. Your inheritance is assured. Be calm and trust him. Verse 28, Yahweh loves the just, will not forsake his faithful ones. They'll be protected forever. The offspring of the wicked will be cut off. Which suggests a pattern. And by the way, you'll see this in a lot of verses about inheritance in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Everybody will inherit. If you walk with the Lord, if you are faithful, if you're part of his family, you inherit as a member of his family. 
if you say, no, I don't want God, then you will inherit not God. But everybody, everybody inherits. And he promises that. And these are forever promises. He says, the righteous, 29, will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. So basically, wait, in verse 34, for Yahweh. Keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. Do you believe that psalm? That God says, no, I'm on it. I'm on it. Trust me on this. No matter what else happens, I'm on it. What if that inheritance weren't just the land of Israel? What if you could apply that to a deeper, richer, more eternal inheritance? And I'm not even talking about heaven necessarily yet. Stay in the Old Testament. Moses told the people of God in Deuteronomy 4, Yahweh took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you are now. And you could read that, and you could say, yeah, that's great, and miss the grammar of what he's saying. Because there's a specific point that he's making here that he makes again five chapters later. Deuteronomy 9, 26. I prayed to Yahweh, Moses said, and said, O sovereign Yahweh, don't destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by the, your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Did you hear what he said? The people, not the land, the people are the inheritance. He keeps saying it. The kingdom of God's people, that's God's inheritance. That's his portion. That's his possession. Do not destroy your people, your own inheritance. The people are the inheritance. Verse 27, he says, overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Verse 29, they are your people. They are your inheritance that you brought out of your, by your great power and your outstretched arm. The people get all excited about the land. God is all excited about the people. They're his inheritance. The people that God has claimed for himself as the choice bits. Even in their wickedness and sin, which I find interesting. This is Old Testament, right? Isn't that a New Testament concept? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And yet it's an Old Testament concept because it's a biblical concept. God looks at you and goes, in your wickedness and your sin, you are my inheritance. You are my possession. I love you. And I love you enough not to leave you there, but I love you there. Solomon specifically nods to this idea centuries later when he says in 1 Kings 8, they are your people and your inheritance for you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance. And even another psalmist sings in Psalm 33, verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people he chose to be his inheritance. So how does that work? How does it work that the people are God's inheritance? Does, does it mean that God will inherit people someday? This is another time when it helps to actually look at the original word because the Hebrew word used for inheritance doesn't have quite the same oomph to it that the, the, the English or the Greek word. The English and the Greek word is talking about something that when somebody dies and it's part of their estate, you inherit this. The Hebrew word here, I've already alluded to, means more like it's a portion. It's a possession. It is the estate. It's yours to keep and then to hand down to your heirs. So when you say this is God's inheritance, it's not saying, and God someday will inherit it. It's like, no, 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 it's, it's his now. It's part of his estate. It's his possession. So 
in the Bible, in Hebrew, you have to look at the context to know if somebody has the possession now or if this is something that is part of an estate that they will eventually inherit. Does that make sense? Okay, so what? It brings us to an interesting point. If the land and the kingdom belong to God's people, and God's people and the land and the kingdom all belong to God, and all of that ultimately belongs to God's designated heirs as part of his estate, who inherits God's possessions? Who who, who receives his kingdom? Who what family does God claim and designate as his heirs? Now, technically, in the Bible, there are two different kinds of inheritance, two different kinds of bequeathments. Ezekiel 46 tells us that Yahweh says, if a, if a prince, if some royal ruler makes a gift from his inheritance, from his possessions, to one of his sons, to one of his children, it will also belong to that son's descendants to that whole family. It's their property by inheritance. It's theirs, right? It's, if I give it to Megan, it's hers from then on. Megan gives it to her children. It's theirs from then on. It's, it belongs to her because she is my legal heir. That's one form of inheritance. If, we're told, however, he makes a gift from his inheritance to one of his servants... The servant may keep it until the year of freedom, the year of jubilee. The servant can use it, but kind of like as a guest. It's like a timeshare. You know, the house I'm giving to Megan. You know, my timeshare, I don't have a timeshare. My timeshare, Nikki can use it, Terry can use it, Scott can use it. I mean, you don't get to keep it, but totally knock yourself out. They can keep it until the year of freedom. Then it's going to revert back to the prince, to that royal family. Because his inheritance belongs to his sons only. It's theirs. So there's an inheritance and there's an inheritance. That makes a certain amount of sense. There's a gift that a royal leader can give to bless someone so they can enjoy it, but it's not theirs. They're just going to eventually have to give it back. But then there's the inheritance where the royal leader gives his property, his portion, his possession in perpetuity to his children. It's unequivocally theirs because they're not just servants, they're heirs. Okay, I know I'm giving a lot of background and a lot of legal jargon and things and people are like, okay. The reason all of this gets really interesting to me, put everything I've been talking about for the last you know, hour and a half that you've been listening. In Galatians 4, Paul tells us, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit within you that rightly calls God Father, that calls the King of Kings, the creator and sustainer of the whole universe, the spirit within you that rightly calls him Dad. The spirit that says you are in an intimate, loving, personal relationship. That's who's in your hearts. So you are no longer, Paul says, a servant. You're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. You are an heir to God's possession. You are the inheritance and the inherited, and you're the inheritor. An heir of the, free, of the forever kingdom, an heir of the rest of the people of God, an heir of the promises of God, and not as some guest 
who, well, you know, you're kind of, well, you can enjoy it, but it's not really yours. You have to make sure you take care of the condo because somebody's going to look at it later and go, what'd you do to my condo? It's yours. Unequivocally yours. You're not just servants, you're family. And I say that because some of us don't feel that way. Some of us feel like we're kind of outside of this, like we're kind of stapled on. I mean, there's the church, there's these people, and then there's me. And I guess I, I, I'm also going to heaven, and that's great, but I don't, I don't know that I deserve it. I don't know that I deserve God. I don't know I deserve being part of the family. I don't know if I deserve the inheritance. And so if I don't feel like I deserve it, I just, I'm only sort of connected to it. Well, you're right. You don't deserve it. Congratulations. I'm not sure that the Pilate brothers deserved $7 billion because they've earned it. No. But legally, it's theirs. And legally, it's yours. You didn't deserve heaven. You didn't deserve this. You didn't deserve salvation. But it's yours by right of legal inheritance. It's not a fluke. It's not a mistake. It's not something that God's just going to take back because, well, you didn't handle it right. You got it scuffed. It's not going to remove it on a whim because he's tired of you. Everything that's always been true of all the inheritances in the Bible is still true today for your relationship with God. Everything we've read in that psalm, everything that we've read in Ezekiel, all these things are true of your inheritance that you get from God. He won't forsake you. He won't forsake his covenant with you. He won't forsake his inheritance set aside for you. And it's not just because he's a nice guy, though he is, or he's a very loving guy, though he is, but because you've officially, legally been adopted into his family by the blood of Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, by an adoption by which the Father says, you're my child, call me dad. Every part of the Trinity is making sure you are really and for true part of the family of God. So if you go, I don't feel like it, respectfully, that's on you. You are a child of the living God. If you've given your heart to the Lord, if you've been washed clean by the blood, he's dad, and this inheritance is yours. Jesus preached that God will say, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Paul wrote in Ephesians, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. You were marked with the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It's not about what you deserve. It's about accessing what you've been given in Christ. The lawyer's trying to find you in your cave. That's it. Put your faith in this. It's not about you deserving it. It's just accessing it. It's not about accepting what you've been chosen to be in Christ. Letting God give you his name, give you his spirit, give you his inheritance, his kingdom, prepared for you, the people prepared to be your family. And all this was prepared for you, and you were prepared for all this since before Genesis 1-1. Jesus said so. Paul said so. 
The Holy Spirit within you is saying so. Be what you were sculpted to be. Wrap your head around this paradox. Everything has been given to you as your legal divine inheritance, and it is yours in perpetuity. Everything to the fullness of God handed to you. And paradoxically, and ain't none of that about you. So you start getting cocky, you go, no, 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 you're not embracing the paradox. You're right, I'm a horrible person. I, I don't deserve any of this. This isn't connected to me. You're not embracing the paradox. You're a horrible person and you didn't deserve this. And everything has been given to you. Embrace the paradox. You're broken. You didn't deserve it. Okay. And Jesus says, and I mend you and I wash you clean. I don't care whether you deserve it. It's yours. So how about you live in a way that reflects this? You'll never earn it, but live like you deserve it. Titus, Paul says, God saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done. It's not you deserving this. But because of his mercy, his willingness to give you what you didn't deserve. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs and having the hope of eternal life. You've been given this as heirs, not because of anything you did. The writer of Hebrews says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he's died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. He paid for you. You've been set free. And it's not because of you. It's because of him. Over and over and over again, everybody's saying it. Jesus, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, the psalmists. Over and over again. This fantastical inheritance focuses you on your future eternal life, even as it cleans up your past, and it should absolutely be used right now. Spend it right now because it's inexhaustible. Pay off your debts. You have this debt of sin, and he says, I'm giving you an inheritance. I'm washing you with my blood. We're getting rid of the guilt of those debts and yet still building up eternal dividends because Jesus even said in Matthew 6, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, rust, destroy, where thieves break in and steal it. No, no. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust don't destroy, thieves don't break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is important? What do you see as your inheritance? You familiar with the World Cup? The World Cup, this uh, this important soccer ter- football tournament, um, soccer that happens every four years like it's the olympics where the whole world gets together and says we're going to we're going to play soccer and and it's the dream of every soccer team and every soccer loving nation to sit there and go if we can just win the world cup we're the greatest people on the planet our entire country is amazing because those guys in the field kicked the ball into a goal better than you did world cup trophy itself is one of if not the most expensive trophy forever made for sporting events. It's amazing. It's it's made out of 18 karat gold and it has malachite strips on the on the base of it. it it's uh, I think it's 14 and a half inches tall. It weighs 13 and a half pounds solid gold. It's amazing. It's valued at over 20 million dollars. 
which is why it keeps getting stolen. We don't even know how many times it's been stolen. I know it's been stolen several times, but they don't even always necessarily report it when it's been stolen. We don't know how many times it's been stolen, but people take it all the time. So Argentina, I think Argentina technically has it now, right? Argentina won it in December, so they technically have it. I think they beat France. No, they don't. They got their picture taken with it. Look, we got the World Cup. Celebrations. Watch the internet. Knock yourself out. World Cup. And if you look, if you go to Argentina, they've got the World Cup trophy there. No, they don't. Because it's so expensive and it's been stolen so many times, they let you take your picture with it and then they take it back. And they put it in a vault. And they give you a cheap copy to take home to your country. Argentina has a cheap copy of the World Cup trophy. But they, and they only have it for like four years and then they've got to give it back. And whoever wins the next time gets to take the cheap copy home. How excited do you want to be about that? All that effort, all that striving, all that fretting, all that soccer hooliganism to briefly hold on to a pale echo of the thing you find really valuable. Beloved, what, what, do, you, what do you and I invest ourselves in today so that we can briefly hold on to a pale echo of something that we really know is valuable? How much do we do that? Do we ever, do we ever forget the inheritance, lose sight of the inheritance so that we can caress a fake trophy for a couple of years? Do we? We forget what we have been given. 1 Peter 1 says, In his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. You give thanks for your inheritance. It was purchased with stuff that's so much more valuable than gold and malachite right that stuff's nothing compared to the blood of christ nothing we go yeah but i really want it i really want it you go you're not even going to get to keep it i know but i really want something that looks like it it's there waiting for you it's not going anywhere it doesn't have an expiration date no one can take it from you it's yours it's yours yours not just a guest it's yours yours it's really for your for you and it's yours in perpetuity you just have to get there i don't mean you have to earn it i just mean you have to believe in your heart that christ is your lord and your treasure and you have to confess with your lips to those around you isn't that what paul says believe in your heart confessing with your lips do just do that which i suppose means that maybe with this fantastical inheritance it should make you think about the future, about eternal life. It should make you think about the past and what you've been saved from. And it should make you think about living in the present. You should invest in eternity and spend it right away to, spend, to pay off your debt of sin. But you should be giving gifts out of your inheritance to the people you care about, shouldn't you? In fact, I would argue you have to. It's too big for you to keep for yourself in a vault. It's like manna. If you just keep it, it turns into something else, right? It rots. It turns into something ugly. It shifts from righteousness to self-righteousness. From, look what we've been given, to, I like to look at what I've been given. My precious, 
not healthy. No, it should be given out, especially since it's inexhaustible. The more you give it out, the more you have. The more I share it with people, the more it means to me. Share this good news of this inheritance and share that it's not yours. It's all yours. It's, it's not just mine. It's mine and yours and theirs and every like it's it's supposed to be for everybody. Basically, as Paul says, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Because there's so many riches here. There's so many pretty, pretty fake trophies. So many pretty, pretty fake trophies to strive and grump and fret over. So many things you're like, if I could just get one more dollar, if I could squeeze one more out of today, if I could just get more money, I could just, I'll be so much happier. Have you noticed the people getting happier and happier as they do that? Or do they get more and more focused on just, if I could just get, if I could just get, you fret about finding joy you'll just find fret but wrap your head wrap your joy around the real riches the real treasure of knowing that your real inheritance is really yours because you are really the lord's and his whole kingdom is yours i could sound trite i don't mean it sound trite it could sound like a slogan. I don't mean it that. It could sound like prosperity doctor. I don't mean it like that. I'm just being biblical. God says, I look at you and you're my possession. And I give everything that I am to you. That should be motivating. I don't want you to end up being like a trust fund baby that sits there and goes, all right, I can just live off of what dad earned. Don't do that. I don't want you to get lazy. This should be motivating. I don't want you to be young Hal. I want you to be Henry V. That's a Shakespeare. Nobody reads Shakespeare. Don't, I don't want you to, I don't want you to rest easy on an unearned salvation and do nothing. I want you to be motivated by an unearned salvation and live like you, you know what it is and you know who earned it for you. Hebrews 6 says, we don't want you to become lazy but to imitate those who faith and patience inherit what was promised. Don't be lazy. Don't rest on his laurels. Don't say, well, he has to let me in. I'm, on, I'm a Vanderbilt. You have to let me into an Ivy League school. No, it's not like that. Say, I'm a Christian. I bear the name. It means I will inherit everything. But I need to live in such a way that honors that name. If I'm going to use that name, if I'm going to name drop, and I should, I want to give that name that I'm dropping a good showing. I want to show people I know what this means. I want to live like I honor my family. So in Colossians, we read earlier, Paul says, we pray that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. You may please him in every, in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing the knowledge of God. I don't want you to be lazy. I want you to live this out being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. We should be giving thanks that we share in this inheritance. We should actively, consciously be given thanks. You didn't qualify you. God did. You didn't earn your adoption as children. Christ did that for you. 
You aren't powerful and mighty, but God is. And God's Spirit dwells within you to strengthen you, to empower you, to give you endurance, to give you patience, to give you joy. Didn't he say all of that in in Colossians? You're not just the sum total of your ability to get through this life. You're a child of the living God. You bear his name and you bear his spirit, which means you bear his authority, you bear his responsibility, and you bear his power. That doesn't change the way you live. Do you understand that adoption at all? How can I fret? How can I steam up inside? How do I lose it if I remember this? The answer is you don't. When you're fretting, when you're angry, when you're wrathful, when you're... uh, It's because you've lost sight of this. I've lost sight of this. But Paul says, no, you're a child of the living God, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. I love the word he uses there. That, and brought us into this kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You've been bought back, and that's your inheritance. Played out forever, but starting now. You are living in this. Your debt's washed away by blood. Your name written into the family of God by blood. Your everyday life changed by blood. You changed by blood. Don't don't you do that now? Doesn't that start now? When are you forgiven? Is it now? When are you part of the body of Christ? Is it now? When are you in communion with the Holy Spirit? Is it now? When are you in the presence of God? Is it now? Paul says in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not the human masters that you see right in front of you, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're really serving. The kingdom of God is lived out right now by God's family right now, who are living like they're changed by God right now, living alongside one another right now, in the presence of God forever right now. In so many ways that really matter, we're all like, man, I hope I get to heaven. You're in heaven. You're ambassadors of heaven. If heaven is the kingdom and the presence of God, and you're ambassadors, and your life is an embassy, and wherever you step in your embassy, remind me, legally, isn't that your home nation? Isn't that why people strive to get to the American embassy? Ha ha, I crossed the line. I'm in America now. I might be in the middle of Paraguay, but I'm in America. Isn't your life supposed to be an embassy? Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not trying to get weird about this. There will be a point when the earth is washed clean, when heaven comes to earth. There will be a point. But it's a point where you're given perfect eyes to finally see, a perfect heart to finally worship without being tainted by all the pretty, pretty fake trophies all around you. You can finally do this right but you can finally see that you've been walking in this all the time. And this is finally imbuing everything with itself. But you are ambassadors of heaven now. You're in the kingdom of God right now. Beloved, you're living in a cave. You don't even know yet that you've received an inheritance. Maybe you're scavenging junk to survive. And if you're not careful, if you're not really thoughtful about it, it is possible that you 
think of your particular cave as a mansion, so much better than her cave. My junk is beautiful. It's a golden trophy. You dig for shiny rocks in the mud like a yahoo, and you miss the fact that you are a child of the living God whose inheritance is fantastical, just not a fantasy. And you've got it right now. We are heirs, Paul says in Romans uh, Romans 8. We are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, and we are right now. So give thanks that you share the inheritance today. It's not a someday thing. It's a right now thing that will someday find its ultimate bequeathment. It's perfect dividends. So let me end by praying what Paul prayed on behalf of the elders of the church of Ephesus in Acts. I commit commit you to God and to the word of his grace, his unmerited favor, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, who are set apart, made holy to the whole church. Beloved, I pray for an active faith that saves you and changes you every day. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming to my cave, hunting me down, and saying, I give you everything. Thank you that you you gave this to me as you washed me clean. You didn't wait for me to clean myself enough to deserve it. I thank you you see me as your child broken messed up but beloved i thank you lord help us to love you well and to live an embassy that is our inheritance every day in jesus name and for your glory amen